you have any questions for Politics and Science, you can direct them by email to politicsandscience at madriver.com. That's politics and science at madriver.com. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization. Hello and welcome to Politics and Science. I'm your host, John Barkhausen. Today we feature an archive of my interview of Dr. Raymond Pete, Ph.D., recorded at WGDR circa 2001. In this show he discusses the remarkable story of Dr. Stefan Durovic in his cancer treatment known as Krobiazin. He also covers the heroic but ultimately fruitless efforts by Dr. Andrew C. Ivey, who was at the time one of America's most prominent scientists. Dr. Ivey attempted to give this promising treatment the clinical testing that its positive findings warranted. In case you're interested in the subject, the meticulously written book that tells the story in detail is by Herbert Smith Bailey and is called K. Krobiosin, Key to Cancer. That's spelled out at the end of the show. In this show, Dr. Pete also discusses the suppressed work of an earlier brilliant cancer researcher called Dr. William F. Koch, MD and PhD, in his successful cancer treatments. If you're interested in Dr. Raymond Pete's work, many of his writings are available at his website, raypeat, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T, dot com. And now, once again, here's Dr. Raymond Pete. A.C.I.V. These people all overlap for, for various reasons, partly because several of the alternative health, especially alternative cancer treatment people, were working on essentially the same ideas, and they were all attacked by the established um, forces that were working on different assumptions. What year was this? Oh, Koch um, started his work. Um, I think one of his publications was 1911, another 1914. And uh, by the 20s, he had a clinic going in Cleveland. He he was a, a professor of medicine and chemistry, and he was the first person to take seriously for biochemistry the the work on free radicals of Moses Gomberg, um, who, who demonstrated that free radicals really exist. They aren't just a, a hypothesis that exists only on paper, but uh, Moses Gomberg showed that highly colored uh, chemicals appear when you can get free radicals to uh, separate in solution, and the color is because the electron that is no longer paired is free enough that it absorbs light in the visible spectrum. And and so that's one of the simple ways to test uh, an unpaired electron is that suddenly the solution goes dark. And uh, it, even chemists didn't take Gomberg seriously. Um, in Russia, he was um, um, 
a major influence, but in the United States, um, for probably 40 or 50 years, um, free radical chemistry just couldn't take off. Um, the industrial chemist, um, I think it was DuPont himself, um, maybe not, but anyway, it was the head of one of the early um, plastics companies, mm -hmm. uh, told um, William Koch that he had better be quiet about the idea of applying free radical chemistry in medicine because people didn't even understand that in in a organic ordinary chemistry and that uh, they were going to say he was talking about fantasies if he talked about the free radical basis of biology hmm. and um, it, it was around 1950 that uh, the instrumentation became available to demonstrate that free radicals really did exist in living tissue and uh, um, what was the the name of the scientist who ran for president in I think the Peace and Freedom Party in the 1970s um, uh, very commoner oh, right. he was one of the first people to um, demonstrate free radicals existing in living tissues. I didn't, under, I didn't know that. When did the free radical um, theory start? Um, well, about 1905, I think. Uh -huh. 1900 to 1905 was when Moses Gomberg was demonstrating them. But immediately, um, um, Koch was putting it into theoretical um, thinking about what cells are doing, and he applied it to the concept of polymerization and blood clotting mm -hmm. as as his first thing. And he knew that in um, healing a wound or a cancer, blood clotting is one of the first things that happens, and the clotting abnormalities are characteristic of cancer. And it turned out that. Uh, for places like DuPont, the polymerization was, in fact, a very important practical industrial principle using the free radical. But mm. uh, Koch anticipated even industrial thinking in, within um, just a few years of, of starting to work on it. Um, he was applying it theoretically and practically to um, devise both explanations for disease and uh, therapies. Hmm. Yeah, he seems like quite a brilliant man. Um, yeah, so so quick to uh, apply knowledge that was that was very clear and definite, but um, other people couldn't accept it because it um, just didn't seem to fit the the low standard that was common in in chemistry and all branches of science and biology at that time. Mm -hmm. The free radical. I'm sorry, I'm pretty ignorant here, but the free radical theory that must have come out of the atomic theory of electrons and yeah, 
um, ordinary chemistry um, on paper they would show um, an atom coming loose or or an atom with other atoms attached to it coming loose from um, another group and taking one electron away um, where each atom had been contributing an electron to a pair that made a stable compound. On paper, they could take away a group with one electron and allow it to combine somewhere else, but they just couldn't believe that that could really exist in a watery solution, for example. Huh. But how Moses Gomberg first did it was with, uh, I think it was um, triphenyl um, ethane. Anyway, it had um, three large um, carbon rings attached to one tiny little uh, molecule in the center. And the uh, tendency of the the benzene ring um, to repel um, because they were placed too close together, um, and they um, the whole group wasn't very soluble in water. The, the force of the water and the closeness of these large groups, if you diluted, if you kept adding water to a solution of this compound, as it got very highly dilute, <clears throat> the color would suddenly change from clear to a deep purple. As, as, hmm. as you got it um, diluted enough, the groups would um, be able to fall apart from each other and exist freely in solution. And this, um, anyone that knew homeopathy, which a well-educated doctor did in 1900 um, knew that that the principle of homeopathy was that some compounds become chemically more reactive when they're highly diluted, and so it was natural for someone with a medical education to to see the importance of this chemical principle. But not many people who who had studied homeopathy as well as classical medicine um, also studied chemistry, which mm. Koch did. <laughs> and the first time I heard about Koch was, um, I think, 1943 or 44. Um, people were circulating little mimeographed newsletters about the scandal of how he was being persecuted by the FBI and so on. And the, the history of, of his two trials, um, it's been written up, and Koch uh, himself told some of the stories that, uh, and <laughs> these stories have never been refuted. Um, they're pretty well documented. Um, he said that um, criminals who tried to kill him later were proven to be, at that time, agents of the FBI. Hmm. And the public didn't start hearing of um, mob FBI connections or CIA connections until 
the church committee in the 70s yeah. brought out the, the stuff, but it was something that had been going on for a long time. Is that, um, is that pre-Hoover? Oh, no. That was Hoover. No. Yeah, Hoover was yeah. there for, what, about 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, he was quite a gangster. Yeah. So, and why were they going after him at that point? Um, well, his clinic was so successful in Cleveland that uh, it, it was bringing a lot of attention to him, even though he followed um, DuPont's advice and... and uh, Maybe it wasn't DuPont, but anyway, he followed this industrialist's advice and didn't explain the free radical basis. He was just having objective results that that brought a lot of attention to his clinic. Mm -hmm. And um, he had tried to publish all of the details in uh, the period oh, um, 1917 to 1921. He submitted papers all over the world, but the standard medical journals wouldn't accept a free radical chemical explanation for any biological events. And so the government then was claiming that he had a secret um, method simply because he couldn't um, get journals to, to publish it. They called it a, a secret quack method but um, years later after I had studied Koch's books thoroughly and I had also um, been studying Otto Warburg's work and uh, Albert St. George's work on cancer and I noticed uh, dramatic parallels between the work St. George was doing all the way through the, from the 30s when he got the Nobel Prize um, all the way down to um, the, I think it was about 1973 or 4 when I wrote St. Georgie. I outlined over about two pages the amazing similarities between Koch's work that he had described in his books um, done between 1910 and 1925 or so, and what St. George started doing in about 1932 and continued to the 1970s. And I outlined this amazing set of parallels and said, is this just coincidence or did you, were you influenced by W.F. Koch? Because um, in all of St. George's work, I couldn't find a single reference to W.F. Koch, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> he answered that he had the highest respect for the work of W.F. Koch, <laughs> which obviously meant that since he had never referred to it in print, <clears throat> that he knew what had happened to Koch, and he didn't want it to happen to him. Maybe we could go back a little bit and talk about uh, Koch's, his cancer therapy and how he was uh, persecuted. Who was he threatening at the time? Do you oh, think? Um, well, the, um, I think it was the FDA itself that um, accused him of violating the, the law by selling um, something that they said couldn't cure cancer. 
And so they had it analyzed and um, couldn't detect anything in it. Um, but the um, they had machinery... It, they had his cure analyzed? Yeah. Yeah. And they said it was distilled water, and he made some in court according to his procedure and took this highly colored material and diluted it, and it was so dilute that it looked like distilled water, and he gave them the sample and had them analyze it, and they said it's distilled water. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so the, the jury could see that their own eyes had seen stuff go into it, and the government was telling them it wasn't there. And so twice he was acquitted, but um, he decided it was time to get out of the country with people trying to kill him and keeping him constantly in court instead of doing science. Yeah. And so he spent the rest of his life after 1944 in Brazil. And does any remnants of his work still uh, oh, yeah. operating in Brazil? Oh, um, yeah, I guess about 15 years ago I talked to a very old man who had worked with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't think there's probably anyone still living who is directly connected with him. <clears throat> Coke died, I think, about 1968. Uh -huh. so, and what was the uh, distilled water solution? Was it, was it uh, um, homeopathy? Or? Well, these people that worked with him said that um, it was done by judgment. You, he used a red-hot platinum electrode and um, passed alcohol vapors, not an electrode, but a reactor. It was heated electrically to just the right color of red. And then he passed a stream of, of alcohol vapor um, over that. And at that temperature, the alcohol polymerized into a, a water-soluble uh, chain of molecules, which were um, unstable enough that they would release the individual um, either um, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen group, or a, a small chain of, of those carbon-oxygen groups um, into solution. And those, that was his primary reagent. He also used um, uh, benzoquinone at high dilution, but that was um, just an easy-to-make, lower-potency thing. The, his primary reagent was this thing which required the judgment of knowing just how red your platinum reactor had to be. And so people who had seen him do it could repeat it, and there were people in Brazil um, might still be there. I suppose there are labs that that have passed the technique along. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard from them for years. So, hmm. and and how did this affect? Uh, how was it an anti-cancer therapy? Um, he well, one of his early publications had to do with the um, muscle uh, spasms that 
typically follow removal of the thyroid gland. And uh, the parathyroids tend to be removed along with the thyroid if the surgeon doesn't make a special effort. But um, even though that was um, used as the explanation for why uh, thyroid surgery causes um, these muscle spasms, um, even the most careful surgeon uh, who takes out the thyroid, even when he leaves the parathyroids, it's typical for the patient to suffer these spasms. And uh, anyway, Koch um, experimented with the removal of just the parathyroid glands and found that if you give any um, salt uh, electrolyte, such as potassium, sodium, magnesium, or calcium, if you give it generously, you prevent the spasms. And uh, he was arguing that the parathyroid gland was involved in detoxifying compounds that derive from ammonia, uh, guanidine and methylguanidine, and that these, these uh, chemicals are poisonous and known to cause seizures and muscle spasms. Mm. And, and he could demonstrate that he was causing those to be passed off in the urine by increasing the salt uh, intake. And that was published, I think, 1917. But then A.J. Carlson, a very powerful professor at the University of Chicago, and his group decided that one hormone has only one action and that they basically proclaimed that the parathyroid hormone has the action of mobilizing calcium and that in a calcium deficiency you get the spasms. But there are just terrible problems with that, um, the whole setup, because uh, their description of what's happening to calcium turned out to be uh, without foundation. It, it was all a hypothetical uh, theory that attempted to describe this hormone in terms of one uh, singular action um, on calcium. And that one turns out not to be the way they thought it was. And, and still no one has reverted to consider um, Koch's explanation. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, the, Koch explained the toxicity of, of these compounds as they're similar to what ammonia does, but the amino or ammonia group um, occurs in many chemicals that produce seizures and uh, um, spasms and overstimulation. Uh, we now call it excitotoxicity. Mm -hmm. and, and ammonia and serotonin, um, just a tremendous range of amino compounds have this action. And the um, carbonyl group that, uh, that was the essence of Koch's treatment, whether the carbonyl was in his polymer that he made on his platinum 
reactor or whether it was the carbonyl that was part of the um, benzoquinone molecule. Um, um, it, it was this which Koch explained as drawing electrons to itself away from the electron donors of the ammonia compounds. And during this time, not only was free radical chemistry uh, an underground current, but the um, acid theory of Gilbert Lewis, this was uh, happening at the same time. Uh, Lewis was um, a professor and chemist of, uh, I, I think his theory came out in 1914, and it was a general theory of acidity and alkalinity in terms of electron withdrawal or donation. And it was exactly compatible with Koch's um, oxidation reduction um, explanation of how his catalyst worked. But again, the Lewis theory, which was totally general as a description of acids and bases, couldn't take on people um, brought out the Brunstead-Lowry theory of acids, which is what everyone now teaches, that acid is a hydrogen ion donor. pH is, is a description of the concentration of hydrogen ions. And even though it's not a general theory because there are acids which contain no protons, no hydrogen ions, um, this is this is the standard theory of acids and bases. So, so Lewis's theory of acidity, which was true and general, um, was displaced by a basically erroneous theory, which is now everyone's uh, chemical textbook description of what an acid is. You're and just, so they're still saying it today. Yeah, yeah. and and. It, just totally ignoring the implications of of Gilbert Lewis's uh, good theory, and uh, and especially the way it, it the implications it has for biology and medicine and biochemistry. But Saint Georgie um, was essentially he was looking for evidence of um, Koch's high energy promoter of oxidation as an electron acceptor in physiology. Um, Koch had postulated that, that, you, that um, benzoquinone was useful because there was um, a quinone molecule in the cell that this was a close imitation of and would therefore activate. And it wasn't until 1950 or so that it was discovered that there, in fact, is an essential oxidizing uh, quinone in the cell in the mitochondrion, and it's so ubiquitous that it's called ubiquinone. <laughs> but at the time Koch was saying this, um, uh, analytical chemistry wasn't wasn't refined to the point that it could go beyond 
his theory which had therapeutic results. And so they said it couldn't have therapeutic results because it isn't there. But St. Georgie appreciated the logic, and so he was working on the respiratory chemistry and uh, in the process accidentally discovered things like big parts of the Krebs cycle of the mitochondria and uh, ascorbic acid and so on. But this was really in, in the process of working on respiration itself. Uh, Is this what he received the Nobel Prize for? Yeah, yeah, for his discoveries that led to the Krebs cycle mm-hmm. and, and ascorbic acid and so on, respiration, muscle studies too. Um, the, the muscle action was another one of Krebs things, you know, the, the methylguanidine causing muscle contraction by donating electrons to a system that, that should have the electrons withdrawn by the oxidative catalyst. And this became clearer and clearer in St. George's work, why he was working both on muscle contraction and oxidative metabolism. At the time, it seemed like he was working on two separate lines, but Coke is um, the explanation of of St. George's whole career, basically, because... um, he later became explicit in showing why the donation of electrons to muscles causes them to contract. And another theory besides the uh, proton theory of acids, another theory that that just uh, becomes an obstacle to understanding is the membrane theory of cell function. Uh, which explains cell electricity in terms of ions and protons. And St. Georgie was working on the the direct involvement of electrons and and respiration as the primary thing that regulates those electrons. And in consciousness, for example, um, consciousness disappears instantly when uh, oxygen is no longer available to accept electrons before there's any detectable change in cellular energy level. And uh, St. Georgie was was focusing on these uh, things that really work, really explain cell physiology, and basically ignoring the silliness about protons and cell membranes and so on. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, one of St. George's experiments involved um, adding electron donor chemicals and electron acceptor chemicals to a living muscle. And if the um, donor and, and acceptor were related to each other in terms of their um, oxidation potential, the muscle would contract in their presence. But if these two two, um, groups were not tuned to each other, the muscle wouldn't react. And this was about as close as as you can imagine coming to uh, verifying what Koch was saying about the 
electron acceptor and donor, the, the um, donating an electron to a muscle system or any cellular system causes it to um, go into the active state and the high energy oxidant causes it to stabilize and go into a resting state. And for all of these people, Varberg, Koch, and St. Georgie, um, cancer and allergy and muscle spasms and seizures were all examples of the um, activated state in which there are ele excess electrons. And um, oxidation was the basic uh, answer to um, restoring the cell to its stable resting state. Um, this puts the the cancer problem in a, a different evolutionary light. These people were seeing cell division as the basic state of, of any cell that at a point in evolution, oxidative um, respiration came in and made it possible for cells to stop dividing long enough to uh, form part of a functioning multicellular organism. Um, and so um, the reversion to cancer became simply uh, interference with the ability to respire on the cellular level. So the problem with cancer and spasms and seizures is that your cells are just not getting the oxygen. Or can't use it. Um, Varberg's definition of cancer metabolically was that it's aerobic glycolysis. Ordinarily, glycolysis is a process similar to fermentation in which sugar is used very wastefully and um, it happens in the absence of oxygen because oxygen metabolism is very efficient and glycolysis happens normally only when there's no oxygen because it's so inefficient and when you block the oxygen apparatus or the supply you get intense glycolysis and so if, if it's the apparatus rather than the supply which is blocked this is what happens in disease and so this is um, aerobic glycolysis versus anaerobic. Anaerobic is the normal glycolysis. Mm -hmm. Aerobic glycolysis is evidence that the um, respiring organ isn't working right. And so all these people were on this different track of looking for the causes of disease and cancer. Why do you think they were so shunned by the powers that be, the uh, medical people at the time? Well, it, in, in the case of of Coke, I, I think the way Coke tells the story is just that they couldn't understand, and uh, he actually makes sort of almost a case for rational behavior on the part of the government and and the medical associations, um, just in terms of their being badly educated. Um, badly motivated authoritarian people mm -hmm. um, they simply could, couldn't see and didn't want to learn what 
what these people were saying. Um, my professors, all the way uh, through college and graduate school, um, treated Otto Warburg's work as uh, a strange, quaint uh, idea of this very famous, powerful German, uh, even though he got the Nobel Prizes and is recognized as as solving both ends of the uh, uh, essential oxidative cellular mechanism, um, his applying that to cancer, which he did very early, was simply put down as as uh, a character flaw in this otherwise great scientist. But it seems uh, I can see maybe they wouldn't understand and maybe they'd shun him, you know, shun them. But to try to kill um, uh, Dr. Koch, yeah, is it? It actually shows <laughs> that they're threatened by him. Uh, yeah, um, I think the way to understand it really, um, even though Koch does tell tell the story in his book, um, I think the best way to get insight is to read Herbert Bailey's book about probiosin, because um, here if they were contemporaries. Um, Andrew Ivey was one of the biggest establishment doctors in the country, um, the founder of several medical associations and uh, vice president and head of the medical school at the University of Illinois, and um, he was chosen to um, help found the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda and ran it for a year during the Second World War. And the um, board of the American Medical Association, which he had belonged to, chose him as America's representative to the Nuremberg trials to testify on on universal medical ethics. Uh, he was simply one of the biggest of shots in American medicine. And when this Yugoslav uh, doctor who had a, a cancer treatment, he thought, came to the United States, he quickly found out who the big shot was in medicine and took his idea to Andrew Ivey, who was an intelligent person and had been thinking along the lines that that cancer is the loss of some restraining process. He, I don't think, was quite up to the speed of Coke and St. Georgie, but he understood the thinking that was fairly common at that time that that there might just be a lack of a restraint that allows cells to start dividing. And uh, this line of thinking has been demonstrated over and over. Uh, for example, many people don't think about why our liver is as big as it is and no bigger when it has such a capacity for producing new cells. If you cut off half an animal's liver, it'll regrow the liver to the right size. And if you join two rats together in their circulation and remove the liver of one rat, the liver of the second rat grows to 
to be twice its normal size so it can handle the circulation of both animals. Yeah. And the, this is um, a well-documented theory that um, it was these chemicals of restraint were called calones, C-H-A-L-O-N-E, um, meaning a, a restraining influence. And it can be demonstrated in the cornea and in the skin and any organ that is able to divide. If you take an extract of that and add it to the growing culture, the cell division stops. So it's specific to each tissue so that the organism knows how much of a given tissue or organ it should have. And when that amount of calone is produced, uh, cell division stops. And so the absence of that has been considered uh, an obvious uh, influence in abnormal tumor production. And people were, at that time, um, many people were working on tissue extracts trying to get that sort of stuff uh, in a form that would be uh, general enough to apply to a tumor of different tissues. And some people would extract tumors. Um, one of the main uh, lines of thinking was to extract it from urine or from the kidney or from the liver, something that had a general regulatory function. St. Georgie was extracting it from human urine, and uh, he called it retin versus promine, promine being the amino promoter of growth and retin being the restraining influence hmm. and uh, um, these for example um, Lionel Strong who developed the mice colonies that are in common use um, he developed strains that will 100% um, of them will get breast cancer and uh, with using extracts of liver, Lionel Strong showed that he could not only cure the um, cancer of the individual, but um, even that individual's descendants for several generations would be free of cancer. Um, so he was demonstrating hereditary imprinting as well as the uh, Calone principle of uh, tissue extract. So he, he was getting the cologne straight from the liver. Uh, yeah, that he he had a time when he was using shark liver, but um, I talked to him and uh, he said that he thought that any kind of liver would would have the active material. And I experimented with with beef liver and so on, and um, you get a lot of the uh, substances that are similar to what Coke was working with in the kind of extract that you do. Um, anyway, um, Andrew Ivey knew about this other line of research, and so when uh, the Yugoslav doctor said that he had vaccinated horses with with a, an organism that causes tumors, Actinomyces bovis, um, it, and produced a tumor and then extracted the blood of the horses, let the blood clot, 
and then extracted it the way these other people were doing liver and blood and urine and so on. Um, the technique I learned from Lionel Strong was to use absolute ethanol, um, uh, grind up the liver and into a fine powder in the uh, absolute ethanol, and then evaporate the um, alcohol from the material you've extracted and then resuspend it in water. That was exactly the technique um, that the uh, that Ivy learned from the Duravics, and it was a standard technique for uh, getting things that are slightly oil-soluble and slightly water-soluble. Um, it, it forms a sort of emulsion when you take it up in the water. Hmm. And the, um, the Duravix uh, got his attention because he knew that it was, in principle, uh, biologically reasonable. And so he immediately uh, was interested in testing it, and he took patients who, uh, whose doctors said they had only uh, about one or two months life expectancy because they were so uh, seriously sick with cancer. And in these people who were on their last legs, he saw dramatic results. Um, and he, he wasn't, at that point, he wasn't looking for a cure, and he was using very tiny doses, like 10 micrograms mm -hmm. per patient, but one injection would cause um, a very high proportion of the patients to uh, have dramatic improvement. And uh, he reported this after just a, oh, about two years um, of tests in which a lot of the patients did end up dying, but the, the responses to one or two injections were so amazing that Ivy said this stuff has to be um, studied in better ways as there have to be double-blind studies and so on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the this book by Herbert Bailey um, documents in just the most horrifying way the the ways in which the power structure started acting um, one after the other um, um, Andrew Ivey's positions were taken away from him he was fired from his vice presidency and then his professorship, he was um, kicked out of even the scientific uh, organizations that he had founded. One after the other, they would threaten him and say, you'll be punished if you don't give it to us. And he would say, no, it should be tested publicly. And he would lose another job. And uh, he went from being at the very top of American medicine to being basically a community college teacher for the rest of his life huh. and as late as 1964 he was interviewed and asked if, if he didn't regret having stuck by his insistence that the stuff should be tested and uh, he said no he still <laughs> thought it should be tested 
Good for him. <laughs> well, and that's just because he wanted to test it. He wasn't saying it was the cure-all yeah. or anything. No. Well, it makes you wonder what the um, motives are. Well, the book, a good place to start, uh, even before reading the book, is to look at the congressional record from the 88th Congress and the material that Illinois Senator Steve, um, Paul Douglas um, introduced into the congressional record. Um, sworn testimony and uh, a very ordered presentation in a compact form um, documenting the things that uh, Bailey says in the book. And among those are naming people uh, two big drug companies and the treasurer of the American Medical Association as offering him as much as two and a half million dollars offering the Duravics two and a half million dollars for the rights to the, the chemical and they refused and the offers are there are still existing documents of, of the offers and basically a conspiracy and he said it in print and um, over and over like the senator in the congressional record said if if this wasn't true why aren't these chemical companies and the AMA officials and the AMA itself and the journal of the AMA why aren't they suing for slander because these are such horrible things that are said about them that they're they engaged in a criminal conspiracy to uh, control something that they thought apparently was of tremendous economic value mm. and the one of the most convincing things is that um, they refused to comment even on why they wouldn't sue for slander or libel <laughs> are you familiar with dr. Samuel Epstein Oh yeah. I've, yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of the still living good guys. Yeah, I've uh, I got to see uh, his website. He's very critical of the American Cancer Society and basically feels they're doing nothing on the prevention front. Um, mm -hmm. he feels that uh, many chemicals that are being released into the environment by industry and pharmaceuticals are uh, causing cancer and that uh, and mammograms um, he feels that mammograms actually are not only not uh, useful, but they actually can spread cancer. Yeah, yeah. That um, John Goffman, his whole book on uh, the prevention of breast cancer is posted on the internet, and uh, Goffman, G-O-F-M-A-N, um, he was one of the. Atomic Energy Commission's defenders of radiation in the 50s. That was how I came across him. Mm -hmm. Linus Pauling was the only scientist saying that radiation is bad for you. Everyone else supported by the government, um, including John Goffman, who was medical officer for the Lawrence lab. He um, discovered an isotope and so on. He was he was um, a very top figure in both 
medical physics, basically, but in physics itself. And so he was put out as a defender of the safety of radiation. But um, in the uh, 60s, he started thinking about what he was saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, he, he explains how his conversion happened. He simply started thinking about what words he was saying publicly and realized that they were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he had an epiphany. Uh -huh. And he says that two, that three quarters of, of breast cancers are caused by radiation, primarily medical radiation. Right. I was reading something that you had sent me that uh, said that bone density scans are uh, basically x-rays. Yeah. Which I, I had never known that. <laughs> and I have friends who are going in for uh, bone density scans. Yeah, the terrible thing is that if they're going to recommend that you do it anyway because you're old and old people have thinning bones, so why do they bother uh, finding out how thin your bones are? And especially when ultrasound technology exists that is more meaningful, it will actually tell you the strength of your bones, not just how dense they are. And um, hmm. in the Journal of the American Medical Association itself, um, someone published little graphs showing tremendous inaccuracy of the bone scan because of differences in fat and water in the tissues. And some people have a lot of fat in their bone marrow, and others have very little fat, but um, a lot of fluid. And estrogen, for example, affects the distribution of fat and fluid in your body. And uh, it, this technique, one of the reasons the bone scan is popular is that estrogen seems to increase bone density, where all through the uh, early, oh, the 60s and 70s, all of the evidence showed when you grind up the bones, uh, they're not made more dense by estrogen. The, the um, estrogen causes calcium retention, but no increase of bone density. But the x-ray technique used now for scanning sometimes does give an apparent increase in bone density, but this this publication shows that the fat-water artifact, which can be influenced by estrogen, um, could explain any apparent benefit. And, and since the ultrasound measures the strength as well as the density, um, that there are just many overwhelming arguments why no one should ever have a bone scan. And besides being harmless and uh, meaningful and accurate, the ultrasound happens to stimulate bone growth where x-rays accelerate bone loss. Every time you get a bone scan, your bones are going to go away a little faster just for the x-rays. So that applies to the x-rays in the teeth, too. Yeah, and the x-rays bounce off your teeth and jaw bones, um, accelerate the atrophy of your jawbone, but the bouncing rays go into your brain. And they know that um, the um, dental x-rays cause thyroid cancer and eye cancer, cancer of the eyeball. 
And if they're bouncing to that extent, obviously they're going through the brain, and the brain is the most sensitive of all tissues to radiation. Hmm. And so a great way to produce Alzheimer's disease ought to be to have lots of dental x-rays. Oh, God. Wow, it gives me another reason to be not so happy about going to the dentist. <laughs> Do you think they could use ultrasound on your teeth? Yeah, there are instruments already existing that give very fine resolution. All you need is a, a, a transducer that you can put in your mouth, and someone has made those, and you can produce very fine resolution pictures of any structure you want to. Wow. So all you dentists out there that are listening, take note. Maybe you should say where to get Herbert Bailey's book or what the name oh. of it is. Or oh, it's uh, probably out of print, isn't it? Uh, oh, maybe one of them is in print, um, but you can find them somewhere. Um, old bookstores would be where I would look, um, or libraries. Um, the pressure caused the first publisher to fold up within a year, and... Uh, book reviews were canceled and uh, positive reviews were were canceled while uh, negative dishonest reviews uh, were published mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, it isn't a popular book to, to publish or republish so it's probably going to be hard to find it I see, but the name of it was uh, it was by Herbert Bailey, and the book was called Krebizin? Um, yeah, one was K. Krebizin, uh, uh, Key to Cancer, something like that. Uh -huh. the, other one, the title is is clear enough. So it's K-R-E-B-I-O-Z-E-N. I-O-Z-E-N, okay. Thanks for listening to Politics and Science today. If you want to find out more about Raymond Pete, you can go to his website, raypete, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T, dot com. If you have any questions for politics and science, you can direct them by email to politicsandscience at madriver.com. That's politics, A-N-D, science, at madriver.com. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization. You're listening to WOOL 100.1 FM.